Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. Today on the show, I am joined by the architect, teacher, and writer Robert A. M. Stern. In the architecture world, Stern likely needs no introduction. He served as Dean of the School of Architecture at Yale from 1998 to 2016 and was previously a longtime professor at Columbia University. He hosted the 1986 PBS series Pride of Place, served on the board of directors for the Walt Disney Corporation, and is the author of dozens of books. He did all of this on top of leading Robert A.M. Stern Architects, the architecture firm he founded over 50 years ago. We speak today, though, on the occasion of his latest book, Between Memory and Invention, an autobiography of his life in architecture. And reading this book, I was struck by how many of Stern's interests mirrored my own. His career spans design, writing, history, administration, criticism, curating, and so much more. So I was really eager to talk to him about all of these facets of his career and how they fit together for him. But what's really interesting about this book to me was how in many ways it was really a book of architectural history wrapped in memoir. Over his nearly 60-year career, Stern had a front row seat to the development of contemporary architecture. And so I was curious to talk to him about how the field has changed from the state of the discourse to the influence of the modernism, postmodern debates of the 80s and why he thinks we're all postmodernists now. It was truly an honor to sit with him for this time and talk through so many of the topics that we're both interested in, including trading martini recipes at the end of the episode. That's something you'll definitely want to stick around for, I think. If you like this show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for superfans. They give you access to all sorts of bonus content, like our monthly newsletter, early episodes, full transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like scratching the surface, and if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. Thank you for listening. And here is my really wide ranging and wonderful conversation with Robert A.M. Stern. When I read your book, I was very familiar with your work as an architect. I was familiar with your work uh, at Yale. Uh, I knew you through some of the things that you were doing with Disney. I did not realize so fully until I read the new book how involved you were in architecture history, how involved you were in sort of all these other things outside of you know, what we might consider a sort of traditional architecture practice. And what was interesting is how that starts all the way at the beginning of your career. And you studied history at Columbia. And then even when you were at Yale, you took time off to focus on history. And I'm interested in where that interest in history came from and that interest in writing or that that sort of drive to pursue these hobbies also. What, uh, what was it that was so interesting to you all the way kind of at the beginning? Well, I can't quite answer your question in a simple way, or maybe even at all. Um, but <laughs> the point of fact is that um, I, I went to Columbia and my time at Columbia as a student was in the college and the college was not, there was no architectural major, which has, I since um, 
when I returned to Columbia as a faculty member, uh, initiated. Uh, but I was starved for architectural uh, knowledge, whereas some of the people who, when I got to Yale, uh, arrived, had had an architecture major at Yale or at Princeton um, or even at Smith College. So um, in any case, I did even while an undergraduate, and I think I referred to it in my book, um, uh, tried to um, embark, uh, embarked on writing a few papers for uh, Professor Upjohn, Everard Upjohn on assessing contemporary buildings. That was the assignment, by the way, at that time. And then by the time I got to Yale, things opened up as it were in different ways. One of which was that Vincent Scully was such a dominant force and I was so impressed with his approach, which was so different from the one at Columbia, which was German um, uh, represented by say right. the famed Rudolf Whitcover. Uh, and uh, 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 Scully's was suspect to a person like Whitcover as not being scholarly enough, but Scully was a great interpreter right. and he always saw history in terms of the present. Uh, and that inspired me. And he called upon me, which was very nice and flattering, uh, early on to do some research for him on his book on Lewis Kahn, which was the first book written mm -hmm. and really the first critical appreciation of any consequence of Kahn's work. Scully got to know Kahn um, when Kahn had been for 10 years on the visiting faculty at, at uh, Yale. So uh, I got to spend time in the library researching Kahn, uh, combing through journals, which were not very well indexed in those days compared to these days when uh, everything is easily uh, accessible right. online. Right. And I went down to see Khan a number of times in his office in Philadelphia, and um, uh, I got to know him. I mean, I'm not sure he got to know me in that sense, but I knew him, and um, uh, so I got to spend time with him. And I was, as anyone who got to meet him in those days, fascinated by this uh, gnomic character right. um, and his ideas and his ways of expressing himself sometimes not so clearly, uh, but oftentimes very clearly. And through um, Khan, I became aware of the fact that George Howe, who had been Khan's mentor in the 1930s and 40s, um, uh, and had brought Khan more or less uh, and supported him at Yale, including getting him the commission for the addition to the art gallery, which was an amazing commission for an architect of so little tech uh, professional experience uh, that I began to realize how important how was and how he had been overlooked, but that how he um, illuminated what troubled me increasingly as my time as a student, at my time as a student, was the um, inadequacy of the modernist argument about function mm -hmm. and technology uh, and, and the uh, fact that um, architecture had been uh, captured by the Harvard uh, aesthetic, the so-called Bauhaus school, but right. I'm not sure it really was the Bauhaus. It was people who had been at the Bauhaus, which is a little different right. from the actual right. pedagogy of the Bauhaus, which was rather, rather more open, I think, than we yeah. then gave it credit for, yeah. and which Gropius in particular 
um, suppressed. Gropius was a kind of, um, well, I won't say he was evil, that's unfair, but he was, <laughs> but he had a tremendous influence um, and held opinions that it certainly to me were not right. where I wanted to go in architecture. Now, who would be, who would care where a 25 year old one was thinking of going in architecture? But at Yale, each of us um, who wanted to articulate an idea uh, was given free reign to do so by Paul Rudolph, the then chairman of the Department of Architecture, by Vincent Scully, mm -hmm. the then professor of architectural art history. Always, Scully always said he was a professor of art history, not architectural history. Right. He wanted to distance himself, I think, in particular from people like Siegfried Gideon mm -hmm. at Harvard, who was um, a proponent of a very uh, influential, but as I came to see it, a restrictive view of what modern architecture was and could be and should be. Well, this this actually kind of gets to what my next question was. You're starting to touch on it a little bit. You saw this history and, and this way to kind of wrestle with these ideas as a way to make sense for yourself where you wanted to go as an architect. The, the historical work was from the beginning was always sort of in service of the buildings that you wanted to do. Is that how you saw that? No, that would be too cause and effect like, okay. uh, I think that's the way it happened ultimately. But I think there were a number, I know there were a number of students at Yale, Jonathan Barnett, Jacqueline Robertson, my oldest friend in architecture, and some others whose names at the moment slipped by uh, mem memory, but they, who were really interested in architectural history. Oh, well. Yale had some women students. Now I say that because they had not had women had not gone to most architecture schools until the 1940s. Mm. Yale was slow to admit women. Carol Meeks, who was a very important architectural historian, um, uh, but felt that women should not enter the profession, that they couldn't handle the profession and have a, a fully mature uh, life as, I suppose, mothers and, and wives. In any case, these uh, women students, Ethel Kramer and MJ Long, um, coming down from Smith, where they had studied under Russell Hitchcock. Mm. I should make that point very clear. Henry Russell Hitchcock was a great historian. He had started out studying as to be an architect at Harvard in the 1920s, realized he wasn't quite up to it and shifted over to architecture. He, he became a close friend of Philip Johnson, who also was an architect who had a deep interest in architectural history and had originally intended to write a work of architectural history, uh, had not, but he and Hitchcock wrote a great work of architectural polemic the international mm -hmm. style mm -hmm. uh, for them as a catalog for the Museum of Modern Art show which they curated in 1932. So all of this I try to go into a good deal of it in my um, autobiography but also uh, um, the Yale story as it were in a book I wrote uh, yeah. and published a few years ago 
called Pedagogy and Place, right. which is, is intended as a history of the school, but um, uh, it does go into this story. And of course, in the book ultimately that emerged um, uh, uh, as a monograph uh, about the work of George Howe and his life, this story becomes an important um, of, of Howe's um, life and my book about Howe. And I was encouraged in this by Philip Johnson, who was very mm -hmm. much on the scene at Yale, and by uh, Paul Rudolph, who was not the scholar that Johnson <laughs> was, but who had an interest in, his, in history and a respect for architectural history, but not necessarily for architectural historians whom he I held see. in some disdain. In, in your autobiography, you write about immediately after Yale, you work for the Architectural League of New York as a curator. You work for then Mayor John Lindsay for the city of New York. Um, you write sort of jokingly about your short time with Richard Meyer and how he sort of, you know, said you were never in the office because uh, you were doing all of these other things. And I'm, I, I'm curious how serious you were or if you've ever imagined a sort of alternate career where you stayed on that side as a historian, as a curator. Um, is that a possibility? Is that something that could have happened? Well, it certainly could have happened. But as I think I point out in the bio autobiography that Paul Rudolph warned me right. not to get sucked into the right. MoMA crowd, as he called it. And MoMA had... Um, uh, uh, Wilder Green, who was a Yale graduate of a few years before my time, uh, who was there. Um, uh, and Johnson was the, still the curator of the Department of Architecture and an architect in independent practice. Right. Um, right. So there was that model. Um, but I think Rudolph thought uh, you should concentrate on one or the other. But he was very supportive, that is, Rudolph was of, of whatever I wanted to do. Um, Philip Johnson was the one who, who decided that I should be the new um, J. Clawson Mills Fellow at right. the Architectural League, which was in effect the kind of curator, as you put it. Um, and I did that for a year, caused a reasonable amount of underground tumult in New York <laughs> at a key moment when New York was shifting from uh, one model of development, which is vulgarly uh, uh, abstracted as the Moses era, Robert Moses mm -hmm, era, mm -hmm. to another that was much more aligned with Jane Jacobs's idea right. of right. getting out, looking at what's going on in the streets, not tearing things down, and so forth. It was a dramatic period in uh, architectural history and urban history, much been written about. There's still probably much more that could be written about. And uh, Jack Robertson um, uh, was, he must, uh, he did know Lindsay, I suppose, socially, um, uh, but he encouraged me to help work on the campaign. Um, and we would meet, that is, myself, Eli Jacobs, so the lady who would become my wife, uh, Lynn mm -hmm. Solinger, um, uh, uh, Jonathan Barnett, and so forth. We would meet once every other week to produce uh, the documentation leading to a white paper that Tom Hoving, Thomas Hoving, mm -hmm. who was a PhD in art history, was up at the Cloisters as a curator, right. uh, was very well connected in New York. His father was the head of Tiffany's 
Um, uh, and um, Tom was um, given the responsibility to produce this white paper, a, a document uh, about urban issues. Tom's interests were parks, and he quite rightly saw parks and, as a very mm -hmm. important overlooked uh, aspect of urban life. Robert Moses had uh, bulldozed his way through parks in the 30s, but it basically abandoned them as an issue in the 40s and 50s. And uh, so we did the white paper. We, we met with lots of people in uh, using Senator Jacob Javits's New York office as an after hours uh, uh, conference room, mm -hmm. uh, meeting setting. And um, I, I got to know a lot of things that were happening, not only in architecture, I knew a lot of those from my time as a student at Yale with my ear to the um, ground right. as it were, but through we inviting people to come and talk about what they thought the city should be. And those were amazing sessions. And a lot of them were recorded. I don't know where mm. those white papers were. They were recorded and then uh, using um, uh, courtroom stenographers, uh, I think translated into paper documents. They must exist somewhere. I haven't looked for them. Oh, wow. Myself. That's amazing. What do you think that early work, whether that was working on the campaign, working for the city, even the Architectural League, what did that give you as an architect that you wouldn't have had if you went straight straight into practice? You know, you, you joined well, a firm I, and worked your way up or you started your own right away. How did, how did all those other activities, how did those sort of affect your work going well, forward? A, a lot of young architects, maybe today as well, but certainly in my day, didn't want to go into a big firm. The nearest of the bigger firms that they liked to go into was Edward Barnes, and uh, his was hardly a big firm. Um, uh, and when I went to Richard Myers, there were five of us, including Richard Meyer. Mm -hmm. um, not what you'd call a substantial practice at that time. Right. But uh, in any case, um, my college roommate, Sam Wiseman, was kind enough, I suppose is the way to put it, to give me rain to design a weekend house uh, in, in Montauk. And it was, a, again, a dramatic moment when young people, uh, people in their late 20s and early 30s, were, I guess, affluent enough mm -hmm. to uh, uh, contemplate building modest weekend houses, uh, mostly on Long Island. Uh, so the, quote, birth of the Hamptons, unquote, <laughs> took place then. And the, the, the Southampton, East Hampton, Montauk right. were pretty right. sleepy all through the 30s um, and, and well into the late 50s, partially because there was no easy way of getting there except the Long Island Railroad, which as the public service was falling apart, um, partially because in the 30s, nobody had the kind of money or very few people had the kind of money to contemplate building a, a, even a weekend house and so on. So um, I, was, I was doing both things at once, that is scratching together a practice right. and then um, still working on uh, uh, um, um, research. I, I did a lot of my work on the George Howe book and then subsequently on um, uh, editing with Peter Asim and the writings of Philip Johnson mm -hmm. while sitting in, a, in my car for an hour and a half or so while my son was taking horseback riding lessons. <laughs>
So um, I had a, a one hour or one and a half hours of absolute peace every Saturday and Sunday that. morning all year round. So you get a lot of work right. done that way. I mean, so this this hits at something that was interesting to me about sort of the the overlap between the practice, the overlap between the firm and these other sort of projects you were doing, whether they were research projects, whether it was writing. Uh, I mean, even even when you, in, in Pedagogy in Place, which you mentioned earlier, you talk about how previous deans, when their practices would get successful, it would take time away from Yale. And when you joined Yale, you know, Ramza had 150 people or something like that. How did, how did you think about splitting your time between this is this is building this firm while also engaging in these research projects or even uh you know your time at yale well by the time i became the dean at yale i was a very established architect mm -hmm. and but i'd also had behind me uh some i don't know tw over 20 years maybe almost 30 years teaching at columbia right. which i was a full professor by the time uh that time period was over and I was always writing things. And in fact, um, faculty who wished to become permanent members of the faculty, uh, in other words, tenured, um, were, um, uh, Columbia was suspicious of people who, to tenure people who were just practicing architects. Mm. Columbia is, um, is a research-oriented university, which has not a strong background in the arts, including architecture, even though it's architecture school was right. founded in 1881. Right. Um, uh, and it's one of the oldest in the country. But um, I, in any case, when I went to Yale, uh, it was a good time, uh, it seemed to me. And I think uh, uh, I had partners and we had, a, as you say, a pretty big office. And it was time for me to uh, begin to uh, pass the baton to younger people and in my autobiography, um, I try to mention wherever possible, I probably have neglected to give people appropriate credit, but the collaboration I had with my, especially with my senior people. And if you know my series of, the series of monographs of our work, documenting every five years right. of the work beginning in 1965, right. is always a list at the back of the book <laughs> um, of who worked on each project. So that the architecture, um, Paul Rudolph tried to emphasize that architecture was all about the architect with his hand on the pencil, taking it to the paper, sort of a <laughs> pre-computer <laughs> moment. But uh, I um, always thought that it was a kind of team project, but team work had a bad odor for me and for many others because of Walter Gropius and the way he organized the architects collaborative, which mm -hmm. was not mm -hmm. a team in which he would be in charge or somebody and others would support a singular vision, but in which each collaborating architect would kind of do his or her own thing. That didn't seem to me a very good idea. And most of the work mm -hmm. that came out of the architects collaborative was rather Right, as a result. Right, right. Did you see or do you see administration, uh, especially during your tenure at Yale? Is that an architectural project? Did you see that as as uh, something similar? Well, there are two sides to the uh, coin of administration. 
One is the side of getting the trains to run on time, so right. to speak. Um, and I'm, I, I'm quite good at that, but I'm not interested in it as a be all and end all. Oh, interesting. And, um, you know, I talk about Robert Buford being brought into our practice somewhere in the right. early 80s and so forth. But, but um, the, the other side is, um, uh, uh, as I tried to uh, say a minute or two ago, uh, is being the leader of a project, mm-hmm. setting out the direction of a project to go, setting out a direction of a firm to go. So it isn't a rudderless uh, way of doing things. And so many people in our practice um, uh, were former students of mine. Now, not, not so many, but so many, uh, but they're now senior people, partners themselves. In any case, I think I'm pretty good at running the railroad, but um, not wanting to uh, over overmanage. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm a micromanager. I think if you talk to people in my office, they might have a different opinion. Yeah, and you sort of suggest that a little bit in, in the autobiography too, about some of the faculty being a little bit uh, unexpected with some of your hands-on approach while you were at Yale. It was necessary <laughs> to grab the reins which right. had been allowed to slack, to be very slack, um, and to pull pull the the the, the horse um, by the bit, um, since we had a riding uh, knowledge <laughs> there, um, and tighten things up. And the faculty, frankly, had come to think of themselves as um, independent of each other, which is fine. Mm-hmm. You have to have a direction or a, an agreed upon uh, a set of um, principles in an architecture school, uh, 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 in a history department um, or an English department, even that has some uh, uh, validity, but certainly in an architecture school, which has to have shared um, values uh, because as students move from one studio to the next, one lecture class to the next, they have to be able to add this thing up into some sort of set of principles from which they can go forward in their own practice, whether they adopt those principles or react against those principles. Just as important to react against them as to adopt them. I want to come back to that idea in a second, but I have another sort of administration question for you. And I apologize for all the the administration questions, but this this is an interesting subject for me. I've talked to a, a decent amount, a handful of kind of practitioner deans about the overlap between running the institutions and running their practices or running their their firms. And I, I'm curious how you thought about that. And even in the way you're talking about it, you, you seem to, to think of Ramsey and Yale as two separate things. Were there overlap there? Were you seeing influences, you know, things that you were talking about at Yale influencing projects and vice versa? Well, I tried to say keep separate Yale from my uh, professional office. But it's important to mention that Yale has a tradition of having as chairman, and then when the Department of Architecture became its own independent school, um, as deans, practicing architects, which sets it apart from virtually every other architecture school, um, Penn or Princeton or Harvard, because remember that Gropius was not the dean at right. Harvard, right. Uh, uh, Joseph Hudnut was. Um, uh, he was an architect by training and had done a little 
practice in his early days, but basically was an academic. Uh, so Yale was different and eschewed and continues to eschew uh, having um, uh, uh, academics run the architecture school. It's a professional school with um, practicing architects so that it doesn't lose touch with the purpose of architectural education, which is training for the practice of architecture, which is what George Hale said in a well-known, um, often quoted at least a while ago, uh, uh, essay he wrote, published in Prospecta. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that because that was one of my one of my favorite parts in, in Pedagogy in Place. This is a little bit of a, a side note, but before you were hired and sort of the debacle of finding the new dean and there were there were non-architects who you know, were considered for that uh, before you were ultimately considered. And it's, it's sort of an interesting thought experiment to imagine uh, an academic or a historian in that role. Well, it was unusual and it got me crazy at that time. I was right. very upset by that when, when I learned of that. And it shows what happens when you let the inmates run the <laughs> asylum. Um, and I'm, I, I, I very much think faculty are wonderful and they each have their specialties, but you put them all together, they seldom agree on anything uh, like picking a leader for themselves. Um, they're notoriously, uh, they tend to see the leader as someone who will support them, each one of them, but not necessarily uh, uh, put the whole thing together. So mm. Yale was very good about that. Yale is famous among architecture schools for having no narrow ideological point right. of view right. and famously so because its leaders have been practicing architects who have wisely thought that there was more than one way to as it were skin the cat how do you think your tenure as dean changed how you think about architecture or did it i guess i shouldn't assume that it did change you how did did kind of that time being involved that intimately did that change what you thought it meant to be an architect or, or, you know, what it meant to think about architecture? Well, when I was at Columbia, it was the high postmodern period. <laughs> and I was a leading advocate of uh, a reintroduction of the classical tradition into architectural education and architectural practice. By the time I got to Yale as the Dean, of course, many people feared that I would turn <laughs> right. Yale into something like the School of Architecture at Notre Dame, which right. had adopted a completely classical um, approach. Right. Uh, um, I won't say like the Beaux-Arts, but similar to the Beaux-Arts in the early, um, in, the, in the late 19th century. Uh, I went out of my way not to do that, but right. at the same time, I may, went out of my way to see that, it, that classical tradition which had already been reintroduced at Yale by um, uh, Thomas Beebe, my predecessor, but one, and who was still on the faculty uh, at Yale, um, who had brought Thomas Gordon Smith to Yale, who brought Leon Creer to Yale, mm. and Dimitri Perfirius, all to teach visiting studios. I brought them back, not, not Smith, because he was at Notre Dame by this time, and I encouraged students to study under uh, career and um, Perfirius students still want to be individual geniuses, still believe the kind of 
a romantic view of the architect. Maybe that's healthy or not. I'm no longer quite sure for myself, <laughs> but um, uh, I would encourage students to study under um, Creer or, or yeah, Porfirios. Yeah. And we have a, a lottery system where you uh, have to, um, uh, you get put into a studio, which may not be your first cha- choice. This is when you're an advanced student in, this, in the program. And students would come whining up to me, oh, I don't want to study with Dimitri. He's so traditional. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you're going to do it because that's the system and that's the, the number you drew, so to speak. Um, but by the middle of the term, people would come up to me and say, you know, Dimitri is an amazing teacher. Right. Um, I've learned so much and my horizons have opened so much. And of course, many uh, glamorous practitioner architects who come to Yale teaching as visitors turn out to be terrible people. Right. Right. Um, right. Uh, I, I would never have admitted that when I was the dean, but now right. I can. Right. I mean, I love that you brought up uh, sort of the, the the height of postmodernism too, because what's really interesting about your new book is that it is an it is essentially a book about architectural history that is sort of disguised as a autobiography, and it was really interesting to sort of read firsthand the um, the effects and the influence of this modernism, postmodernist debate, which I am admittedly too young to have experienced firsthand. But when I was in school as a graphic designer, it was still something that was talked about. And I'm curious how you think about that now, that sort of the way that debate became so all-encompassing and how we're still in many ways feeling the effects of that. What is, how do you kind of think about that now with, uh, with some distance? Well, there was postmodernism in the 1980s, which became a kind of style, a mannerism, right. Right. Um, a, a manner, I should say. And uh, it got a little out of hand, um, a, lot, a little too jokey. I myself might have been guilty of some of that in the early days of postmodernism. Uh, uh, but I came to my senses. And for me, <laughs> it, um, I, I saw it as an, a way, a window to actually return to right. the language of, of traditional architecture, both the vernacular, which Scully had been very much um, uh, a proponent of, uh, an, an analyst of, sorry, um, uh, in his book in the Shingle Style and other books, and the classical, which he also talked about in his underappreciated uh, book about Greek architecture, the earth, the temple, and the gods. But um, uh, I think we are all in, we are still postmodernists. Yeah, we yeah. are still in a period, and, um, and well, I'm happy for it, which uh, doesn't see work in such a narrow way. Sure, uh, a modernist work like a writer like James Joyce was amazing mm. to read, especially Ulysses. Nobody can read Finnegan's Wake, in my opinion. Um, but it's so uh, uh, obscuring of meanings to most people. You have to have a gigantic book next to the book to figure out what the <laughs> hell he's writing about. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying it's not great literature, but you know, I prefer Scott Fitzgerald, who said wonderfully incisive things in a way that you can understand um, right. as an informed or as an as a um, uh, 
a reader, a, 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 a regular reader. Yeah, yeah. I think we are still postmodernists. We, if you look at what's happening in the art world, um, mm -hmm. uh, the 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 uh, narrow-minded functionalism of architecture was paralleled by the narrow-minded uh, abstract expressionism, which mm -hmm. threw out all representational mm -hmm. art mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the fifties, and, and and now uh, look at what's going on. You have um, a host of representational approaches, which I might say is amazing, are amazing, because they have brought people back into the fold, or maybe for the first time, into the fold of serious art, and typically African-American artists who mm -hmm. relish the imagery that goes with representation. So we are still postmodernists. We are all postmodernists, whether you like it or not. I, yes, I, I agree with that. And I was kind of curious, do you think architecture needs a debate like that to shake it out of whatever it's in now to push it forward? I mean, there, you know, as, as controversial as that debate was, it generated so much new ideas and thinking and forms and buildings. Uh, you know, does architecture need something like that now? Well, it does. Um, up until the pandemic, architecture was so busy with architects, was so busy with work that there was a real dropping off right. of um, discourse, right. debate, whatever you want to call it, but I prefer the term discourse, which had flourished in the 1970s um, among younger architects, especially yeah. um, uh, because there was no work. Um, today, uh, up until the pandemic, uh, I, I, a couple of graduates of Yale or Columbia, one of the schools that, of, uh, that I'm familiar with, um, would set up an architecture office uh, basically on their kitchen tables and their computers, and they could get work, and, um, they, but they didn't have a, a time to debate, or maybe they were reluctant to debate. I don't know. I tend to think maybe there was a mm. reluctance to stick necks out. Um, there mm. was a fear that uh, criticizing the ideas of another architect of your own generation um, <clears throat> might be uh, perceived as jealousy or, or uh, something like that. But now um, the pandemic kind of shut, you would have think it, it wouldn't have shut yeah. this course down, but it really did because people couldn't meet face to face. Uh, I'm, I'm all for the Zoom, we're doing a Zoom, but I'm not particularly fond of it. And right. uh, we used to have in the 70s at the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies or at the Architecture League, 50 or 100 people would turn out once or twice a week to hear a lecture, to see a presentation mm -hmm. on current work or whatever. Uh, and, and, and there would be questions and answers. And there were questions from the audience. Now people, I guess maybe they're so used to looking at screens, they don't ask questions. But I maybe, you know, I'm an old guy now. I'm about to be 83. And while I still think I have a few of my marbles um, left, um, uh, I, I, I see a difference. Uh, I don't see the rebirth of a discourse, an active discourse. And if you were to talk to someone like my rough contemporary, Peter Eisenman, I think he mm. would agree um, uh, that uh, uh, the profession, the younger profession, 
has kind of shut down. That's really interesting to me. And you started answering exactly what my next question was going to be. I was, I was kind of curious to hear you talk a little bit about that evolution of that discourse, which you were just kind of touching on. And I'm curious why, why you think that has sort of shut down or has lost some of that steam. Is it because, is it sort of that, that fear of ruffling feathers that you're talking about? Are there, do you have thoughts on what those issues could be that could generate a, a sort of more vibrant discourse? What's your sort of, you know, where's your head at right now? Well, first of all, there was no work uh, so, uh, in the 70s, as I pointed out. <laughs> right. So that gave people time to think and maybe to meet with each other. Second of all, and um, this is not a very profound, well, maybe the most profound observation or not, most architects, and I'm and my reference is New York, were situated in Manhattan, mm. mostly in Midtown right. in those days. And so to go from your office to um, the League, which was situated in the Villard houses on Madison Avenue, mm. or to the Institute in a building facing the public library on 40th Street, was a hop, skip, and a jump. Right. You could go there, be there for six or six thirty event, um, sit, be there for an hour, uh, a half hour of questions, a little socialization, go out with some pals for dinner, and um, uh, and see each other. Today, architects are everywhere from uh, their homes in lofts um, and and Tribeca, uh, some in Midtown, Brooklyn, right. um, the Forbidden Borough. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be called the Forgotten Borough, but that's now Staten Island. Uh, and um, uh, so um, the, the, it's harder to get together. And I do think in order to um, uh, uh, stimulate discourse, uh, exchange of ideas, passionate uh, exchange of ideas, you had to have people in the same room. I may be mm. old fashioned, but I think that's true. And, uh, you know, when you see those television programs on Sunday morning, um, you get the, those people typically are sitting in the same studio arguing right. with each other. Right. And but that's still valuable. So anyhow, we are not in an age of active discourse. And frankly, the, some of the architecture schools have really fallen asleep. What is interesting as well to as some of the architects, I might add. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, what what is interesting to you about architecture today? Are there e either are there buildings or people themselves, or are there ideas and issues that are sort of keeping you excited? Well, I think one of the most depressing things about architecture today is the introduction, uh, and it was rampant in the architecture schools of a theory based on a literary theory, <coughs> which has um, uh, not so much relevance to literature in my view, but certainly had a killing effect on architecture, turning a whole generation of young architects into a belief that um, uh, building things um, uh, was maybe not as important as talking about them. architecture is what uh, right. it tended to be called. And that there's a problem. And, um, uh, you know, my dear friend, Cynthia Davidson, mm -hmm. uh, edits a magazine um, uh, on uh, architecture, which is mostly uh, obscurantist um, essays uh, on, on uh, obscure topics. 
tangentially related to architecture, and she calls it log, L-O-G. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that's a representation of what I think is a problem uh, mm. in in architecture. So, uh, I, and, and you don't get people passionate about building things as the way they were. Maybe it's also the computer, which has taken the hands of the designer in a way so far apart from the reality of constructing things, making things. At Yale in my student days, making things was essential. Um, you made models upon models, mm -hmm. drawing things um, uh, was very important. If you didn't have a drawing to exhibit your ideas, a critic like Paul Rudolph would just not sit with you and talk about your project. He said, when you draw it, I'll talk about it. Right. Okay, so um, uh, uh, talking wasn't that he was anti-intellectual, but he thought, well, maybe he was anti-intellectual, I don't know. But, um, uh, uh, but he certainly thought that the purpose of architecture was construction of buildings and cities. He did talk about cities. I, it, that's interesting. And it bring it's like, it brings this conversation full circle. Cause that's kind of how I start. That's how I started this conversation. I was interested in this overlap for you between talking about architecture and building things. By this the first... way, I didn't usually talk about architecture as a student in the studio. I would, I, 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 mm. I write these, I would, and I like history. I don't like theory. I like history. <laughs> right, it's like, you know, right. what was done before. And, and I love old buildings and I love the preservation of old buildings. And um, I should mention that in 1963, when architects protested the destruction of Pennsylvania Station, I was an architecture student. How right. could I not be right. influenced by that? Right. Well, so can you talk a little bit about Again, we're going back a little bit, but your PBS show Pride of Place, because I think that's actually a really interesting sort of, I, I know it's different and I'm, I'm stretching this analogy a little bit, but now thinking about log and thinking about Pride of Place and this idea of almost explaining or sort of communicating these ideas to a wider public beyond just architects. I'm curious about the value you see there of talking about these ideas, talking about these buildings to people who aren't architects, to people who, who are outside of this narrow discourse? Well, that was the whole point of Pride of Place. I always have divided the world into architects and real people. And we were trying <laughs> yeah. in that um, program to address real people. Uh, Civilization, Kenneth Clark's series on civilization had been very <laughs> effective yeah. in presenting um, the high art of architecture and the high art of art, really. It was about art more than um, uh, buildings uh, and, and captured a huge audience. And uh, Herb Schmertz, who was the uh, uh, magician behind Masterpiece Theater and very many other um, programs uh, uh, sponsored by the Mobile Oil Company uh, on public television, had the idea that architect that people were interested in architecture. Wow, nobody seemed to else think about that. But he thought there was an audience, and there was an audience. Right. So what I aimed with his direction and um, and support was to aim the the, the programs to the, the 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 curious public, and to mm -hmm. make people realize that that they really were interested in architecture. People would say, I'm not an architect. I don't know how to say, talk about architecture. And I'd say, well, yes, you do. 
because you know what's you know you know what your yeah. living room is like you you know whether you like a ranch house that has colonial themes quote unquote or uh, looks a bit like a um, uh, a Tudor Beethoven house or whatever people have ideas about right. architecture um, and my idea for the program and I leaned on many different architects of different points of view was to give a, 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 a to give courage to mm. the average informed person who might watch such a series um, uh, to, to feel confident about uh, discussing their physical environment. Did it work or not? I don't know. People still write to me about it. So uh, I guess it did. I mean, what's interesting about it, and again, I'm now, I'm now going off on, <laughs> on a little tangent or a rant of my own, is that when when these things are talked about to a wider audience, it's it's so often I feel like focuses on the person, on the architect, and you know this is the architect model, and it, it becomes heroic figure, celebrity, as opposed to actually thinking about well, what does it mean for this building to live in the world? What does it mean to interact with these things, as opposed to look at this, you know, look at this great piece of art, and look at this, you know, this singular genius. Well, uh, of course, architects. Uh, tend to personify their buildings uh, in the in the public discourse. And that's maybe unavoidable, but I think um, it's a fact of life. Uh, just this week, I saw Frank Gehry's picture on the cover of, uh, was it the How to Spend It issue of the Financial <laughs> Times? Um, uh, I'm pretty sure. Or the T issue of the New York Times yeah. Magazine. But there he was. And then there was a completely vapid uh, interview right. with him inside right but, um, but he, there he was sitting in his chair in his office with all the models behind him. it's it's a very powerful image um uh an emblem of himself and of architecture but uh i i think that um uh the programs did go beyond yeah. just celebrating individual architects many of the speakers were not even architects Right. Some were historians and critics. Um, often they were not talking about their own work, but about um, topics in society. Um, uh, so I tried to reach out um, in eight hours. It's a lot of time uh, you, uh, to capture <laughs> people's attention um, in the world of television. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't, I can't solve all the problems. <laughs> you could try. <laughs> I, I, I would like for you to try. I have, we're getting short on time. I have two more very, very quick questions. Okay. Um, in reading the book, I felt like we had a lot of uh, similar interests and a lot of similarities. And, and again, all of, the, all of this stuff we're talking about in your career are things that I'm interested in. But the, the last similarity that I do need to ask you about is your love of martinis. I also drink a lot of martinis and I just need to know how you, how you take your martini. Well, watch out about those, Mark. Don't drink too many. They'll fry <laughs> your brain. How do I take them? Well, in architecture school, it was it was gin, okay. and a little bit of vermouth. And then sometime, quite a bit later, I switched to, to vodka because there was a wonderful campaign from the, one of the vodka companies, I can't remember which, said <laughs> it leaves you breathless. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe people wouldn't notice what a drunk I was uh, if I drank vodka martinis. But now I've started been drinking gin martinis again. They have more flavor. But anyhow, a martini is a wonderful invention of the gods um, given agree. to those of us on earth. 
Are you lemon or olive? No, I'm lemon. I'm I'm gin and olive usually, but now I'm thinking I need to give vodka another chance. Hearing you say well, that, well, vodka vodka basically doesn't have any taste. <laughs> right. Gin has a nice taste. Right, I I agree. Um, okay, my last question. I'm curious what you're reading right now. Well, um, I, um, I just finished. Um, I, I, my reading is very scattershot, but I finished Austin the uh, Tolls. What's his first name? Um, uh, the Lincoln Highway. Uh, Amor Tolls is mm, novel because mm. I thought that I I read his earlier book on the last uh, now I can't think of the title but it was about um, um, uh, a man and and uh, living through uh, the the fall of the imperial era uh, in Russia yeah. uh, and it was all published quite a bit before the collapse uh, the, the the events that are now taking place in mm -hmm. um, in, in Russia. Anyhow, the Lincoln Highway, if you haven't read it, I recommend it highly. Okay. Um, and then I, I have a, a masses of books, as anybody who loves yeah. books might, of unread books. So that so the uh, pandemic has given me time to do a little catching up. And I caught up in a book by Whit Stillman, who made a movie called The Last Days of Disco, mm -hmm. um, uh, which I had quite a run for it in the 80s. You might watch it. It's probably on YouTube or something like that. Mm -hmm. But then he wrote a book about the movie, not about the making of the movie, but as though the book had been written before he made the movie. Oh, interesting. It's published in 2000. I recommend it highly. It really is a great portrait of New York downtown life in the, in the 90s. Um, and I'm just, um, I, I, I mean, I go on and on, but I've just finished this book called um, the Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, just published by a lady named Deborah Cohen. And mm. it's about these very influential journalists in the 1920s through the 1950s, people like John Gunther, Dorothy Thompson, and others. Um, and those people are gone now as a, as a category. Nobody really cares, I think, in the way that they people did care about what um, uh, the, these journalists who were not just reporting on the latest uh, 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 height of the skirt um, mm -hmm. or the waist of a blazer, but on um, really important issues and whose opinions were very respected. I'm thinking of um, Walter Lippmann, who is not mm -hmm. covered in this book, but who was incredibly influential. Mm -hmm. So that's another book. And I, I, in anticipation of your question i listed uh, one more book which i finished a couple of weeks ago which takes me closer to my architectural history interests and in my interest in the english country house as a design mm. phenomenon in the uh, uh and how it's so important to understanding in england to understand that the country house is not just a building but a part of a working uh, ecology, if you will. And it's a man named um, uh, Adrian Tinniswood is the author, T-I-N-N-I-S-W-O-D, and absolutely a very good writer. Mm. Um, and he wrote to Noble Ambitions, The Fall and Rise of the English Country House After World War II. He talks about how so many were torn down, how so many mo more surprisingly were not only saved, but restored, how 
uh, owners got together with the National Trust and the, and the British government to open these houses to the public. They'd never been opened and so mm. on. It's a fascinating study um, and I recommend it highly. All these books that I'm mentioning, I recommend highly. I love that. I will, I'm going to add all of those to my list. I am like you and I have a stack, multiple stacks of books yet to be read. And I've just, I'm going to add those. Your well, new book is Between Memory and Invention, which I also loved immensely and recommend highly. Thank you so much for doing this. This was a, a complete honor for me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you for asking me and I enjoyed it as well. This episode was recorded on March 28th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon, find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. Thank you.